This is The Water Podcast. I'm Robbie Venus. A drop of water hangs from the tip of an acacia tree's needle, shimmering as it reflects and refracts the sunset light. Scarlet, pinks, and purples color the evening sky behind it as it recovers from the darkened days past. Colonized by clouds of different grays, she wept today, and the day before that, but not the day before that, or before that, because like every year, roughly 30 millimeters of rain has fallen in less than two days, and the next rain won't arrive for six months. What has fallen is what is available for use until once again, the clouds return, and she weeps. In the semi-arid climate of Longuito, a rural community in the northeast of Tanzania, the diurnal rainy season shapes the local water culture. Flash floods sweep through dusted roads twice a year, picking up garbage and grease as they swish and slosh about. Overflow rushes through homes and businesses, releasing that smell that only water damage makes you smell. A smell that makes you realize what it will cost to make it go away. Smell of mildew and mold. But then it stops. Clouds part and the sun watches moist acacia needles dangle from a branch like the matted fur of a shaggy dog climbing out of a lake. No more rain to come. No more water to come. And so I share this image, this story, if you will, not to make you pity those that live through this every year, not to make you marvel at the fortune of your geography or your socioeconomic position, though I believe we all should, but just to make you take a moment to think about how water means different things to different people in different places. Now in this place... Water shapes lives like it shapes the dirt roads traversing the Longuito Plains. How in this place, the words water and enough always dance together. Did it rain enough? Is it clean enough? Will there be enough? Welcome to the Water Podcast from Carleton University. I'm your host, Robbie Venus. This episode is the first of a three-part series in which I'll bring you between the city of Arusha and the village of Longuito, the place discussed in the intro, to talk about my research as the project lead of water, or in full, water education research. Each episode is structured as a step to understanding who we are, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and what is happening as a result. As our work is largely funded by amazing and generous donors like many of you, we want to show you exactly what your money is going towards. We believe deeply in the principles of transparency because we want you to be proud of your contribution. So in this episode, I highlight the challenges faced by Longuito residents and rural Tanzanians more broadly when it comes to water quality and quantity. You can think of this as our problem statement, which is why this episode is called The Challenge. 
And to do this, so I want to start our journey. Let's start with this woman. With first, just saying your name. So, um, my name is Virginia Taylor. I am an instructor at Carleton University, um, affiliated with the Sprott School of Business. Uh, I'm also a director uh, here in Tanzania with an organization called Tembo Trust. Virginia has been working with our partners at Tembo, or Tanzania Education and Micro Business Opportunity, in Longido for nearly 10 years, and she's really had the fortune of watching the community develop. And as you may imagine from her two titles, she was the original link that brought Carleton University into Longido. And she did this because she saw a need in the community that just wasn't otherwise being addressed properly. Water. The link with water came about through the recognition that when you look at this particular area, when you look at Longido District as a whole, the most critical issue that faces everybody living here is water. This area being a semi-arid region faces major drought periods throughout the last couple of years. There have been uh, numerous droughts. And uh, without water, life is impacted uh, significantly. And so when you look at what issues that people are addressing, water is always paramount. It is always the first issue that people uh, uh, talk about. And the data says the same. The Tanzanian government released a report in 2017 that says the number of Tanzanians that travel more than two kilometers for water each day doubles during the dry season. That translates to roughly 65% of rural Tanzanians, like those who live in Longido, to regularly consume unsafe drinking water from a source that's more than 30 minutes away by foot on an annual basis. That's 15% higher than the national average, 34% higher than the global average of rural populations, and 52% higher than the overall global average. But just knowing the numbers doesn't really inform you of where and how that impact is felt. Who is really most affected, and how are those impacts experienced in a person's day-to-day? For that, we have to go to Longido and hear from the people themselves. For that, we speak with Paulina. Okay, as uh, my name is Paulina Sumayani. I work for Tembo as an executive director. Paulina is a Maasai woman from Longido who has been working with Tembo for many years. And in her position, she oversees much of the NGO's daily activities, including their girls' education sponsorship program, as well as their microfinance program for entrepreneurial women in the community. And when I asked her these questions, like, how is water impacting her village? Perhaps naturally as an education specialist, she spoke of her concern for students. For other people, they say water is life. And it is true, um, in Longido Secondary School, we have been uh, witnessing the students going out of school looking for water. Because uh, during drought time, mostly drought time starting from August up to um, the beginning of January, it has been a hard time in Longido where there is a big drought and everybody is like uh, looking for water, trying to work and looking for water. And consequently, 
Looking for water impacts these students' education. Paulina continues to tell me how during droughts, a student can walk over two and a half kilometers before reaching a tap, from which they can only collect 10 liters if the water is available at all. But 10 liters, as one may imagine, doesn't last a family or an individual very long. And so the trip is done the next day too. And the day after that, and that, and so on. Each trip taking more and more time away from that student to actually be in school, limiting their access to an education. And for female students, this task is not just burdensome, but it can be dangerous. In one, in one side, it is good and um, negative impact because sometimes we even look on the safety of the girls. Um, they move from Longido Secondary School and they go to the mountain. Most of where they get water during drought is nearby the mountain. So sometimes they, 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 they are allowed during evening time, not even um, afternoon. It is evening because they, they finish their session in the afternoon. After that, they do cleanness, like uh, sweeping and do all of that. And then after that, they go now after water. So it is not safe for them. I may say that is um, one thing. A 2018 study by researchers with the Aga Khan Foundation of Canada and McMaster University found, quote, Participants clearly stated that poor drinking water infrastructure, combined with socially defined gender roles, interact to create a profile of vulnerabilities that women and girls in East Africa experience, end quote. The study goes on to add that instances of rape and violence against women are increasingly likely as distances traveled to collect water increase. And then, once those collection locations are reached, the water is often unsafe for consumption. So, to take you back to Longido, months after rains have fallen and drought has stricken this community, when water is harder to find and more contaminated when it is, we find women at the center of an intersecting tapestry of challenges where financial status, social status, health, and personal security are all affected. But why? What makes Longuito like this? And why is it such a challenge to address these issues? I mean, yes, it's hard to find water in a deserty climate, so the water quantity issues make sense to a degree. But that just doesn't paint the full picture. When I look at my life in Ottawa, I never worry about the safety of my water or its availability. I never worry about my personal security when going to collect a drink of water in my own home. And though I don't want to assume the ability to speak for others who identify with a gender or ethnicity other than my own, I feel comfortable saying most people probably feel the same. So... What makes Longuito different, and why is it so hard to change? Is a lack of funding really the source of all this hardship? Can we just build a water treatment plant and save everybody this hassle? So why can't we just build an infrastructure and assume that it will work, because we're putting in everything in play? This is Dr. Anita Basu. 
Dr. Onita Basu. I'm a civil engineering professor at Carleton University, specializing in environmental engineering with a particular focus in water treatment. She's a former water treatment plant engineer for the Niagara region and my research supervisor. Pardon the noise in the background, please, as this recording was done beneath some birds sharing their home with Tembo's guest house. But anyways. So in order to build a water treatment plant, one, you need to have skilled engineers. So, I mean, we could say, sure, we'll bring in the Canadian design standards and we'll build the system and it'll be designed. But then the second part is, well, who's going to run the plant? So you need a very high skill set from an operator point of view to make sure that the plant is running well so that the water is safe to drink. You need to have a monitoring body to make sure that the operators are doing their job on a regular basis to make sure that the water is also safe to drink. I mean, a perfect example of that from a Canadian standpoint would be Walkerton, Ontario, where we had operators that weren't doing their job and a lack of associated monitoring from the provincial level, and this resulted in E. coli contamination that made half of the population sick and killed 11 people, right? So if you don't have everything in play from design, good design standards, good operators, good monitoring, everything will fall apart. And on top of that, running a water treatment plant is very expensive. You've got pumps, you've got chemicals, you've got to pay the people that are working there, you've got heating and cooling costs. So even if you build the infrastructure, you need to make sure that you also have a budget to maintain the operation and maintenance. So for perspective, in 2017, the City of Toronto spent over $218.5 million on only maintenance of their water treatment infrastructure before the costs of operation that Dr. Basu mentioned. With operation costs, including but not limited to electrical consumption, chemicals, labor, monitoring, and disposal of process waste, that total cost is estimated to increase by an additional two to $400 million per year. Now, add in the fact that Toronto has consistent access to electricity and a well-maintained power grid, which Longuito does not. A water treatment plant would have to be accompanied by electrical infrastructure development, which just increases the cost even more. So, of course... Longuito is a much smaller place than Toronto, so it uses less water and therefore won't have hard number operation costs as high as such a large city. And frankly, I don't believe that this type of infrastructure should be out of the question for good. But the point remains that currently, the capital to develop this infrastructure, plus everything that needs to be built in order to develop this infrastructure plus everyone that needs to be trained properly in order to operate the infrastructure, plus everything that needs to be fixed, changed, monitored, tested while the infrastructure is being operated, all just make this a much more costly and complex approach than may appear from the bird's eye. So where do we go from here? How do we increase access to safe drinking water for Longuito residents and others in villages like it without having to spend 1% of Tanzania's annual GDP? So, I mean, I would say that in a large city such as Dar es Salaam, 
in Tanzania, then a water treatment plant probably has a good chance of functioning correctly. But when you're also working within a community with a large rural population basis, that you have to then look at point-of-use technology. So point-of-use technology is something that's provided to an individual homeowner or sometimes a small family group, and they have access to a method to treat the water directly so that it's safe to drink for themselves. And there are many different point-of-use water treatment options out there, and I will give you lots of details about them in the next episode to explain why we chose the path that we've taken with ceramic water filters and not other solutions. But there's a larger, more important point from what Dr. Basu said that I really want to be the takeaway of this whole podcast. And it's that water, like every other part of life, is different from place to place, and from person to person. Water access in Canada is different than Tanzania. It's different from the city to the country. And it's different from Longido to other rural villages. And the solutions for making that water safe to drink have to be different too. Not necessarily in terms of the technology, but in how they are introduced to a given community. But more details on that to come. So it is true that point-of-use systems don't make more rain fall or fall more often. They don't unflood homes or protect against gender-based violence, make taps closer to schools or the droughts less painful to live through. But they help in other ways. They can make children less ill less often, affording them greater opportunity to attend school. They can help those children's mothers invest time in entrepreneurship as they'll no longer have to be a caregiver so often. And again, I will go over more of these types of details in episode two, but my point here is that we're not talking about a silver bullet solution because a silver bullet solution doesn't exist. We're talking about this community and helping them take a step forward helping them find a solution that fits their needs. Because we all need clean water. And we all deserve clean water. This episode was written and produced by me, Robbie Venus, with the amazing help of J.P. Davidson at Pop-Up Podcasting in Ottawa, Ontario. Special thanks to my guests, Virginia Taylor from the Sprott School of Business in Tembo, Paulina Sumayani from Tembo, and Dr. Anita Basu from the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Carleton University for participating. And another thanks to Dr. Basu for her continued work and support as my research supervisor on this project. Music for this episode was provided by Frankum and Kwama2. And in this next episode, I'm going to be going over how we at Water Education Research have chosen to approach these challenges discussed in today's episode. I'll provide details like why are we using ceramic water filters as our chosen point of use treatment technology? And who have we partnered with to accomplish our goals? And why those partnerships make this project so unique and 
dare I say, awesome. But if you want to learn more about us before that, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Water Carlton, or go to our website at www.watercarlton.org. That's www.w-a-t-e-r-c-a-r-l-e-t-o-n.org. And if you want to help us out or contribute, click on that donate button. Or you can send me an email directly at water at watercarlton.org. Until next time, I'm Robbie Venus. Venus.